John chapter 1, and this evening, Lord willing, we'll finish the text that I set out to finish weeks ago. (laughs) John chapter 1, beginning in verse 29. The next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me, because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness, I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and bore witness that this is the Son of God. Lord, You are truly awesome and wonderful. You evoke within us such emotion and joy and worship. Also awe and reverence, Lord. And as we come to this first beginning introduction of your son Jesus and all that he is, it's good to have a introduction that leads us, leaves us without a doubt as to the nature of your son, Jesus Christ. That we can with assurance know and not wonder or speculate or rely on our own intuition and reason, but instead we can see exactly who He is as our great Savior and Lord. And so tonight, Lord, we ask that as we study more about Your Son, Jesus, that You would give us clarity, that You would give us perspective, and that we would have a greater assessment of who we are as people and a greater understanding of who you are as God. We thank you, Lord, and we ask that you would do this and so much more, Lord, in your name. We pray. Amen. Amen. Well, we've been in this text for a little bit. Of course, let me remind you, John the Baptist here is um, coming to... Uh, having come from the interrogation of some of the uh, religious leaders of the day, trying to figure out who John was. And during that time, Jesus was off in the wilderness, enduring what we call his temptation. And he spent 40 days out there in the wilderness, and Satan did come tempt him those three times. And Upon successfully standing firm against Satan and his full force assault against the Lord, 
the Lord was then brought back into the public eye or the public scrutiny, and he began to preach the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And as he began to preach, John the Baptist then publicly proclaims who Jesus Christ is as the Son of God or the Lamb of God, the one who he was to prepare the way for, who's to make the path straight for Jesus Christ. Well, he comes back and we see in just these few short verses, there's a lot about Jesus in here. And we've already looked at five of the seven truths that John the Baptist brings up about Jesus here in this short little text. First of all, we saw that Jesus was the Lamb of God. And we saw how that as the Lamb of God, He fulfilled all those Old Testament allusions to a sacrificial lamb taking away or covering the sins of the people. Specifically, it referred to the Passover and that lamb that was slain there during the Passover and the blood being applied to the doorposts and the top of the doorway so that the angel of death would pass over. And Jesus Christ is the great fulfillment of that because while he is a substitute, he is the perfect substitute. The Passover had to be continually offered. Sacrifices were repeatedly offered all throughout the history of Israel. But not so with Christ. He came, as the book of Hebrews taught us, once for all, having atoned for the sins of many. Then secondly, we saw that Jesus ranked higher than John. And that would have been an unusual turn of phrase for John to utter because John was born first. And John, for all intents and purposes, at least up to this point, was the greater of the two. Jesus had performed no miracles yet. He had not really gone out and done much in the way of public ministry. And John was the popular guy of the day. I mean, he was out there with his whole getup and the weird things he was eating, and everyone was going, what's the deal with this guy? And so he drew a crowd. He was very attractive. But he proclaims of Jesus that Jesus ranks higher than him. And he said this because Jesus existed before him, which is the third of the major points John the Baptist brings up about Jesus. Jesus ranks higher than John because Jesus existed before John. This is a claim to his eternal existence, that there was never not a time where Jesus existed. For us, we don't have that same experience, right? I did not live in 1948 or 48. (laughs) I did not live, I didn't exist when my kids were growing up and they would ask me, where was I before? I was born, I would always say, you were in the mind of God. That's kind of the best I can do. Granted, theologically, it might not be the most accurate way of description, but it helps a child understand that you didn't exist except in the plan and the purpose of God. There was a long period of time where we did not exist. So for a being to eternally exist is to understate it, saying something very profound about that individual. 
But that's what John is claiming for Jesus himself. That he has eternally existed as the Son of God. As the one who ranks higher than John as this Lamb of God. Then he goes on to say that the purpose of John's coming was to reveal Jesus. He says in verse 31, I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. So the fourth thing is that John the Baptist was the one who revealed Jesus. And then finally, last week, we looked at the fifth point in terms of Jesus and that he is one of the members of the Trinity. He is the second person of the Trinity. We saw, pardon me, we saw how that the Trinity, although when we look back in the pages of the Old Testament, thankfully, we have apostolic interpretation, meaning that the apostles explained and illustrated and elucidated for us much in the way of what the Old Testament teaches. The Old Testament gives us shadows and types of what was to come and be fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ. So a lot of times when we look back in the Old Testament, we're very grateful that we have this New Testament lens through which to look back on. And listen, listen, that's the right way to read the Bible. The Bible was intended to be read through the lens of Jesus Christ. Okay? There are a lot of uh, hermeneutical principles, and that means principles of how you interpret Scripture. There are a lot of hermeneutical principles that would have us say, no, you look at the Old Testament, maybe on its own, because it deals with Israel, and the church is something new. There's hermeneutical principles that tell us the Old says certain things, and we're to take that Old Testament and read that into the New Testament. So there are certain laws and things that would supposedly continue on into the New Testament. The way that we look at it, because we believe that this is the way the apostles did it in the book of Acts and in the epistles, was they, because they were filled with the Holy Spirit, interpreted the Old Testament through the lens of Jesus Christ. And when we do that, suddenly we see Trinity all over the place. Right? We see God declaring himself to be a plurality in multiple places. And for the Jews, they said, well, that was because God was so great and so grand, you couldn't just refer to him in the singular. It had to be plural. We look back and we say, no, there are instances clearly where God is speaking to himself. And we would say that this is because we can look back and we can see these are inter-Trinitarian dialogues that have been revealed by the Holy Spirit to the apostles and that they were able to give us the understanding of this. Jesus himself did this. Remember in the Sermon on the Mount, he said, you have heard it said. Right? Oh, many, many, many times he says that in the Sermon on the Mount. And then he goes on audaciously, let's just be honest, if Jesus isn't the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, how dare he say what he's about to say? But he goes on to say, but I say unto you, and then gives a clear, not only interpretation of the old, 
but an application in the present for that Old Testament principle. You have heard it said, don't look upon a woman with lust in your heart. However, I say to you, if you've even looked at her with your heart, then you have committed adultery already. Something that would not have been in the minds of the Jewish people of the day. So, Jesus makes these claims, makes these statements. We're going to find that he regularly calls himself God or does things and gives the uh, interpretation of those things that he's doing it because he's God Almighty, this second person of the Trinity. The Trinity is one of these things that we looked at uh, somewhat in length, but it's, it's very, very, very much stretching for us to con- contemplate it. How the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit can all three be one in being and yet three in function in purpose and action in time and in space. But yet they eternally exist as one God, one being with three natures. It won't do to say anything other than that. Anything other than that is in some way, shape, or form going to either cheapen the being of God, the nature of God, or it's going to exalt one member of the Trinity over and above another, which is what often happens. The Father is often exalted, and then Jesus is somehow an inferior in some way, shape, or form. Maybe he's really the best of all beings, but he's still a created being kind of thing where cults and isms would have a bad or a misunderstood view of Jesus Christ. But no, he is the member, the second member of the Trinity. So that's Jesus so far. That's a lot that we've looked at in these last two weeks in this sermon. So he doesn't stop there, though. There are two more points that I have highlighted for us to look at in terms of who Jesus Christ actually is. The sixth point is found here in verse 33. John says, I myself did not know him. Right? There was a time where I'm sure John kind of thought it was probably Jesus, but God the Father reveals to John that this is going to happen. But he who sent me to baptize with water, he said to me, on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. That's the sixth point. Jesus baptizes with the Holy Spirit. Now remember, I talked about how John did something new and unique where baptism was a practice. It was a minor practice in Judaism. So a a part of conversion ceremony where you became a Jew. And it was one of the things that you did, one of the rituals where you were put under the water and brought back out. But John was doing this for Jews. And he was calling them to repent. And so it was both shocking for the people in John's day to have him do what he was doing. But it was also preparatory for John to be doing because there was a greater baptism that was about to come. And this greater baptism that John speaks about is this baptism with the Holy Spirit. Now, there is no shortage of confusion about what in the world the baptism of the Holy Spirit is. 
it helps, I will say, because I'm not going to spend a great deal of time on this point. We could do, like I've said throughout this whole thing, a whole sermon just on this. In fact, we'll probably do a whole sermon series someday just on this. We've already gone through 1 Corinthians as a church, so if you want to go back and hear chapter 12, 13, 14, you, know, you can find them archived somewhere, I'm sure. Joel would probably be able to point you in that direction. But let me explain something about the Holy Spirit first. And I think that there's less confusion about the baptism of the Holy Spirit when you understand who the Holy Spirit is and what his purpose and his function is. Some might have you think the Holy Spirit's sole purpose is to show up and give you some kind of hooky spookies and then take off, right? Or he might just roll into town for during a revival meeting and make everybody cry and weep and feel real emotional and then he's off to the next town. Some people would have you think that the Holy Spirit's job is to heal and make you feel bad about yourself so you give money to the church. Now, of course, I'm oversimplifying the ways that these people look at the Holy Spirit. But in all of those scenarios... The Holy Spirit's main function is to do something for you. Do something for you. Now, while there are things the Holy Spirit does indeed do for us, and we'll look at 1 Corinthians 12 in just a minute, the main responsibility of the Holy Spirit is conviction of sin is conviction of sin. Jesus says that He is going to come, meaning the Holy Spirit, and when He does come, He's going to remind you and reveal all things to you so that they can write out sacred Scripture. The Helper is going to come, but that Helper is not going to come in terms of just giving you a lollipop and telling you you're good spiritually. In John chapter 15, it says, When the Helper comes, whom I will send, the Father, uh, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me, and you will also be with my witnesses because you have been with me from the beginning. So the Spirit's job is to bear witness about Jesus Christ, but the specific facts about Jesus Christ pertain to to redemption they pertain to redemption when we very first see the holy spirit showing up in the book of acts it's there on the day of pentecost in acts chapter 2 and on that day when the holy spirit descends and they go around and start speaking in these foreign languages it tells us what they said they proclaimed the glories of god they proclaimed jesus christ And everybody heard in their own language the gospel of Jesus Christ. The Holy Spirit's primary function is to come into the world to convict you of sin, to reveal the truths of Jesus Christ to you, and then cause those who are the elect to be born again, those who are to be His. And this what we call the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Now, I know some of you have a more Pentecostal background, and I know some of you don't. 
So indulge me for a minute because I do. And so I know there is a lot of misunderstanding about the Holy Spirit that comes up because we have been taught wrong from a long time ago. I was taught the baptism of the Holy Spirit was a second act that happened after conversion. So you were a born-again Christian, but not yet a Spirit-filled Christian. And so what you needed to do was you needed to go to either a preacher or some afterglow service or something along those lines... And you needed to go down when they were doing the giving out of the baptism of the Holy Spirit and get baptized in the Spirit. Now, from my experience, what it was, and it's the experience of many, I know there's other ways that this has happened before, but I'm going to, for illustration, just tell you my own instance of it. We all lined up at the front, just kind of like up here. But rather than partaking of communion like you would up here at the altar, we all stood there and the guy came down the aisle and laid his hand on us and he prayed some prayer and I wish I could remember all the words, but I don't. But then he said at the end of his little, his little gimme gift speech or something, he says, and you've been baptized in the Holy Spirit if you feel led, speak in tongues and practice your gifts now. Go down the line, says his little speech. Then he says, You've been filled with, baptized with the Holy Spirit. If you feel led, speak in tongues and practice your gifts now. And he just went all the way down the aisle. And I was not the last, but I was kind of third or fourth from the end. And people started falling out and doing all kinds of weirdy hooties. And I'm like thinking, okay, I, I didn't expect this to happen. I, I, I have a drug addict background from many, many, many years ago. Most of you know that. So I am keen on experiences, at least in some way, shape, or form. And I'll be perfectly honest. In my mind, there was a moment of thinking, if that's what God does, and I was just serving this fake, this imitation, I can't wait to get that, right? So there was a minute, this dude's going down the aisle, where anticipation's building within me. I'm starting to get, like, really excited about this like oh man this is great there's you know gal over here she's right and there's a guy down on the ground and he's kind of rolling and twitching and then he gets to me the guy next to me he starts like walking around the place and talking and stuff in tongues and i'm like thinking i'm real nervous what's gonna happen to me Am I going to be in control of myself? All these thoughts are going through my head. This is why I don't remember what dude said. Because I have all these thoughts going in my head. And he places his hand on me. And he says this little spell. And then he tells me, okay, magic's happened. Go ahead and practice your gifts or speak in tongues. Nothing. Nothing. Like nothing. Like, no little, like, butterflies in my tummy. No little, no anxiety. No, no, like, compulsion to do something. No weak in the knees. Nothing. And he kind of stands there. And he kind of puts his hand on me just a little again. And nothing. And then he just moves on to the next one. And the next one. And the next one. And I am just standing there all by myself, completely embarrassed. That everyone else is having these experiences and stuff and not me. And I can tell you, 
as a, I had only been Christian a little more than a year. Now, I grew up in a church, but it was a Quaker church, so we didn't have nothing like that going on. <laughs> but I wanted that. And I was, I was so frustrated that that didn't happen. Beloved, that is the imitation. The, the, there is a, when you don't have a full-orbed, robust gospel, you look for something else to fill what the gospel is supposed to fill. This is why the Holy Spirit's primary ministry is to convict you of sin and reveal to you who Jesus Christ is. And he doesn't stop doing it the moment you get saved. It is what the Spirit does in the life of the believer throughout the rest of your life. And I don't need to fall out and speak in tongues because the Holy Spirit has taken out my heart of stone and put within me a heart of flesh. The Holy Spirit has caused me to become born again. I was dead man's bones and he breathed new life into me. And I, I stood up and with my very first new baby Christian instinct, prayed to God praises of thanksgiving and joy and worship. And beloved, we don't need to add to that. It's so good, the gospel itself, that we don't need to add to it. So I take a minute and I talk about the errors of this kind of nonsense because they had such a detrimental effect on me and I believe on some of you here and even if they haven't, I don't want it in the future to have a detrimental effect on you because there is a pull and there is a sway that comes from seeing people who look really good and it looks like they're worshiping the Lord and they have something you don't. Beloved, you have everything that pertains to life and godliness through the Holy Spirit in his word. And that's what you need. You don't need goosebumps, spirituality, right? You you don't need emotionalism. Emotionalism is going to rise within you when you're convicted of your sin and you are called to repent through the preacher or through the word of God and the Holy Spirit's doing that work within you. Baptism of the Holy Spirit, when he says that Jesus Christ is going to baptize with the Holy Spirit, notice it is not a baptism out of something or in, out of repentance, right? Right? John's baptism was one out of repentance. So you were repenting and you were coming out of something. Your old former state, right? You were coming up out of those waters and you were purporting to go forth in a holier way because you've repented. The baptism of the Holy Spirit is inclusion into something. So let's look at 1 Corinthians 12. As you're turning there, 1 Corinthians 12. The baptism of the Holy Spirit is a baptism into something. And I'm just going to be clear. It's into the church. It happens at salvation. The moment you have been born again by God, you are baptized in the Holy Spirit. There is no second blessing. There's no extra added, you know, bonus secret sauce kind of thing. This isn't something that you can add on to your Christian meal to make it taste a little better. This is something that happens at conversion where you have been taken from the place of being a rebel, violent, hating God sinner and you have been adopted into the family of God 
now loved and caused to be born again, and now placed into the very thing that is the object of his greatest affection on this world, and that's the church. That's the baptism of the Holy Spirit. You're baptized into the church. Let me show you, 1 Corinthians 12. Now, concerning spiritual gifts, brothers, I don't want you to be uninformed. Now, you know that when you were pagans, you were led astray to mute idols, however you were led. Therefore, I want you to understand that no one speaking in the Spirit ever says, Jesus is accursed, and no one can say, Jesus is Lord, except in the Holy Spirit. Now, there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. And there are varieties of service, but the same Lord. There are varieties of activities, but... It is the same God who empowers them all in everyone. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. That should be a tip-off about what the gifts are for. They're for the common good of the church. They're for the health and benefit of the church, not for you yourself. What I was seeing was for themselves. It's not for the common good of the church. Verse 8. For to one is given through the Spirit the utterance of wisdom, to another knowledge according to the same Spirit, to another faith by the same Spirit, to another gifts of healing by the one Spirit, and to another working of miracles, to another prophecy, to another ability to distinguish between spirits, and to another various kind of tongues, and to another the interpretation of tongues. All are empowered by one and the same Spirit who apportions to each one individually as he wills. Verse 12. For just as the body is one and has many members, then all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one Spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews, Greeks, slaves are free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. Now, it's, I don't know how he could have gotten much more clear than that. We all within the church, we previously were segregated in classes, religious classes, Jews and Greeks, working classes, slaves are free. In other passages, we see male and female distinctions being made. But we find one thing is true, that none of those divisions that exist previously matter in the context of the church because we are all in the church by the same Holy Spirit having been baptized into that body. So we're all one body in Christ, even though there are many of us. And even though we all have been gifted differently, and I would argue, and I'd argue passionately, that the gifts of the Holy Spirit are given at the moment of conversion. So if you have never spoken in tongues, it isn't something that you need to go now hide in a closet and get your little how to speak in tongues praying guide. There are those out there. Don't buy them. (laughs) Don't believe the hype. You don't have to go do that. Believe me, if God wanted you to do it, you would be doing it. 
It's for the edification of the body. The gifts that you have been given are for the edification of the body. So God has gifted me in certain ways that he hasn't gifted Joel. He's gifted Mike in certain ways. He hasn't gifted Caleb. And on and on around the room we can go. But you see, just like a body, I'm glad my finger isn't an ear. Right? I'd have a hard time if I had to, you know, everywhere I went, this is what I had to do to hear. Right? But I'm also glad my ear isn't a finger. Some, you, you, that's silly, right? He goes on and talks about how silly that illustration is. Or the body's one great big eyeball, he says, you know, or one great big tongue, that kind of thing. We're not. We all need each other. We all need each other. Jesus Christ is the head. And he is the one who has gifted us through the Holy Spirit that's been sent by the Father in order to baptize us into the church. So Christ, the one who does this. Jesus Christ is the one who does this. Listen, he, the Father, ordains those who will be saved. Christ comes down and secures their salvation through his atoning work on the cross as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And the Holy Spirit is now the one that comes and applies that to every believer's life or every one of those who Christ died for is life, and they are baptized into the church. We are an inter-Trinitarian membership because God has ordained all of us to be where we're at and through various different means to get us here, we've been baptized by the Spirit into this one body called the church. So that's the Holy Spirit's main function. Everything else is at best secondary. He does lots of other things in our lives. But the primary thing that Christ did is he, or the Spirit does, is saves us, baptizes us into his church, then empowers us for both holiness and to healthily, that's not the right word, to with health build the body, build the church, and make it grow stronger. That's the Holy Spirit's ministry. That's what we should be looking to. That's not sensational and it's not sexy and it doesn't preach in lots of places, but that's the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And so Christ's sixth thing that John the Baptist declares about him is that he baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And finally, the last thing is in verse 34. John says, I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. This is the Son of God. Later on in the book of John, in chapter 10, um, Jesus is going to have some back and forth with some of the Pharisees. And we have this wonderful exchange that takes place. It's in verse 22 of chapter 10. It says that the feast of dedication, as it took place in Jerusalem, it was winter, and Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon. And the Jews gathered around him and said to him, How long are you going to keep us in suspense? If you were the Christ, tell us plainly. It's funny. I imagine that there were some of the very same people here listening to John that are probably here talking to Jesus. Probably some of the very same people. 
And yet they say to Jesus, why are you keeping us in suspense? Tell us plainly. Ah, sin blinds you. I don't think they're just playing coy at this point and going, come on, Jesus, if you're the Christ, just tell us. I think they're blind. I think they can't see it. I think they've been told clearly and explicitly by John the Baptist, but they still can't see it, right? In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, Paul says, a veil is over their face that needs to be removed. And the removal of that veil is the gospel that's preached, we find out later on in first, pardon me, 2 Corinthians chapter 4. But here, these guys are blind, and Jesus answered them and said, I told you, and you don't believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me, but you don't believe me. You are not because, you don't believe me because you are not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. So, the Jews enraged, picked up stones to stone him. And Jesus answered them and said, I have shown you so many good works from the Father. Uh, for which of these are you going to stone me? And they say in crazy venom in their eyes, I can just imagine saying, Not for any of those things. It's not for good works that we're going to stone you. It's because of blasphemy. Because you, being a man, make yourself God. Jesus answered them and said, it is not written in your, is it not written in your lies? Said you are gods. If he called them gods, whom the word of God came to, and scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him who the Father has consecrated and sent into the world, you are blaspheming? Because I said I am the Son of God? If I am not doing the works of my Father, then don't believe me. But if I do them, even though you don't believe me, believe the works that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. And again, they sought to arrest him, but he performed a miracle and escaped out of their hands. In Matthew chapter 11, there is a kind of similar story. Um, Jesus goes <clears throat> giving this lengthy uh, condemnation on many of the cities that was hearing Jesus' preaching. And he says this in verse 25. He prays and thanks God, thanks the Father, Lord of heaven and earth, you have hidden these things from the wise and the understanding and revealed them to children. There it is. Jesus prayed. Jesus prays about these guys who are going to confront him in John 10. And he says of them that they have been hidden or this truth has been hidden from them by God. God hid the truth from them, from the wise and the understanding, the elites of the day. And he revealed this truth to children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. It was gracious that he revealed the truth to the uneducated, the unwise, the children, the us. Verse 27. All things have been handed over to me 
by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone whom the Son chooses to reveal him. And then Jesus says these famous words, which you don't think would come on the heels of this amazing doctor, uh, this amazing declaration in prayer to the Father of the doctrine of election. But it's exactly what Jesus does. After that prayer, he stops and he says to everyone listening, Come unto me, you who are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Jesus is the Son of God. He is the Son of God. He and the Father are one. We see this over and over and over and over and over and over again. He is, to use the technical language of our confession, eternally begotten. And the reason why we say that is because clearly we see he's begotten, but we also have clearly already seen he's eternal. So we're not speaking out of both sides of our mouth. We are, in fact, trying to do the best we can with what we do have in terms of language to explain how Jesus Christ can be the Son of God. But he is eternally begotten. Here, the Father and Jesus are united in prayer. They're united in their function. They're united in their mission. They're united in their goal of saving people from their sins. And here we find this great glorious offer of the gospel given to everyone who would hear. And those people who would turn and come are those who were given by the Father to his precious Son. Jesus Christ is amazing. He is the chiefest and best of all beings. He is the great God. He is the Lamb of God. He is higher than John. He eternally exists. John revealed to us who he was as the second member of the Trinity who baptizes with the Holy Spirit and is always the eternal Son of God. Jesus is the greatest. Jesus is the chiefest and best of all beings. He is rightly the object of our worship, rightly the object of our praise, rightly the object that we reverence and hold in the absolute highest esteem we ever possibly could. Amen? I look forward to the rest of this book as we just look into the life of Jesus more and more and more. Father, we thank you for your son, Jesus Christ. We thank you for this revelation that we have about him to us from the lips of John. It's, it's glorious. And, and even in all of its glory, in the weeks that we spent here discussing it and thinking about it, Lord, frankly, I didn't do it justice. I, I preach the best I can. I look at it the best. But to be honest, Lord, we could be here the rest of our lives and still never even begin to come close to how great How wonderful (coughs) Jesus is. We thank you for your grace and mercy that you've given to us. And we ask, Lord, that as we leave here, that we truly would love you more and know you better than we did when we came in. 